I just want to give you my uh, two cents worth. I'm happy. You happy? Turn to somebody right now, if you would, and say, life is short. Smile while you still have teeth. Get the second part of that? Say it again. Life is short. Smile while you still have teeth. I have a question title for you this morning. Well then, what would make you happy? And just take your time. Don't answer that right now. We're going to walk through it a little bit here. Sometimes God has to interfere with our lives in order to help us find true happiness. His hands are twisted. His feet are useless. He can't bathe himself. He can't feed himself. He can't brush his teeth. can't comb his hair. Can't put on his underwear. Strips of Velcro hold his shirts together. And his speech, what there is, drags like a worn out audio cassette that we were just talking about. His name is Robert. He has cerebral palsy. I'm dedicating this message this morning and want to pay tribute to one of the finest ladies, one of the finest people that I know, our own Rachel Decker. And also my, little, my late brother-in-law, Richard Bray, who both suffer from this disease or suffered from this disease. Those kind of things keep a person from driving a car or riding a bike or going for a walk. But this man, Robert, it didn't keep him from graduating from high school or attending Abilene Christian University, from which he graduated with a degree in Latin. Having cerebral palsy didn't keep him from teaching at St. Louis Junior College or from venturing overseas on five mission trips. Robert's disease didn't prevent him from becoming a missionary in Portugal. Several years ago, he moved to Lisbon all alone, and there he rented a hotel room and began studying Portuguese. He found a restaurant owner who would feed him after the rush hour and he found a tutor who would instruct him in the language. Then he stationed himself daily in a city park where he distributed brochures and pamphlets about Jesus. And inside of six years, he led no fewer than 70 people to the Lord, one of whom became his wife, Rosa. Matter of fact, I think we have a picture of Robert and Rosa, Rosa, and we have maybe a couple other pictures, I don't know. Robert Reed, a pastor, shared this. He said, I heard Robert speak recently. First, I uh, watched other men carry him in his wheelchair onto the platform. I watched them lay a Bible in his lap. I watched his still fingers force open the pages, and I watched people in the audience wipe away tears of admiration from their faces. Robert could have asked for sympathy or pity, but he did just the opposite. He 
Then he held his bent hand up in the air and boasted, I have everything I need for joy. Oh, did I tell you? His shirts are held together by Velcro. But his life is held together by joy. Where are you? Is there something in your life that makes you happy? Or better yet, is there something missing from your life that keeps you from being happy? And I want to stress two words this morning, not to complicate this thing at all. And the very first word is that word, happy. It's a hard word to say without a little bit of a smile on your face. Happy. Say that word with me. Happy. Oh, you look so much better already. What would make you happy? Someone has said happiness is no, is, is no more than good health and, and a bad memory. <laughs> and what do you suppose was the most frequently given answer to a survey question that said, what are you most looking for in life? What do you suppose the most frequent answer was? Happiness. Why? Because people desire to be happy. And the pursuit of happiness has become the chief aim in many lives. It's sort of the purpose for a lot of people. It looks to me and seems like all of mankind is on a search for happiness. Now we could debate whether or not that is in fact the highest calling of mankind, but for the sake of our purpose today, let's just stay narrow here for a moment, and let's just say that it is. Sort of like, you, we'll take on the mantra, I desire to be happy, and happiness, happiness is worth pursuing. Let's agree to agree on that. Now, here's the problem. Happiness seems to be a fleeting thing. Have you ever noticed that? One moment I have it, the next moment something or someone has robbed me of my happiness. What happened? Because yesterday I was happy. What happened? Because last month I was happy. What happened? Because three years ago I was happy. Well, what happened is you hit some happiness stoppers, I call them. And there are a lot of them, but I just want to mention a few, which I think rise to the top. The very first one is the relational turmoil that a lot of people are in. Don't know how to handle relations. You know, it's the kind of people, they love humanity, it's just people they can't get along with. And, and, and it's a relational turmoil day after day after day. Matter of fact, they just jump from one to another. And then another one that seems to bother a lot of people, I hear this over and over, is my job. I won't go there. Another one is God, how God deals with me. That just is a happiness stopper. I'd be great if God wasn't so demanding, if I didn't have to do so many things to keep him satisfied and to keep him happy with my life. Another one, which is very prevalent today, is anger. I like what Ralph Waldo Emerson said. He said, for every minute you're angry, you lose 60 seconds of happiness. And then lack of necessities, or what you think are necessities. Bob, I have no mate. I, I, I have no money. I have no house. I have no friends. I have no, 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 no. And then other, another happiness stopper, poor health. Another happiness stopper, unforgiveness. 
Some of you need to work on this forgiveness thing. Forgiveness doesn't change the past, but it sure enlarges the future. wonder why you can't move any further ahead and along than you are right now. And if you really analyze your life and see that you haven't handled the forgiveness thing at all, I think you'd have your answer. Now, all these things or people or situations block us from achieving that ultimate goal of being happy. So we search. We're looking for that thing, or we're looking for that person, or we're looking for that... Uh, that experience that will finally make us happy. So we try to achieve the place in our life where nothing, nothing, nothing can cause us to be unhappy. We use phrases like, oh man, if only I had, fill in the blank, I'd be happy. Or, Or we use this phrase, if only I didn't have, fill in the blank, don't look at your spouse, I'd, I'd be happy. We're so used to very quickly going to those kind of comments. After looking high and low, looking far and wide, then we resign ourselves to the fact that we are destined to a life of misery. (laughs) And we think happiness is not attainable in this life. And I am here this morning to tell you that that is simply not true. It is possible to be happy in this life. The problem isn't that the goal is unattainable. Hear me now. It is we are seeking it from the wrong source and we're searching in all the wrong places. While relationships and careers and material possessions and good health, all that provide moments of happiness, none of these is the true source of true happiness because true happiness is found from only one source and that's the Lord our God. The psalmist said it in Psalm 146, verse 5. He said, Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Take your Bibles and turn to the last chapter of the book of Cinderella. And the last verse reads, And they lived happily ever after. Please now turn in your Bible to the last chapter of the book of Sleeping Beauty. And the last verse reads, And they lived happily ever ever after. Finally, turn in your Bible to the last chapter of the book of Snow White. And the last verse reads, and they lived happily ever after. Everybody longs for the fairy tale ending. We're not asking much. We just want to be able to live the happily ever after. We want the fairy tale ending. We desire happiness. We long for it. We search for it. We've got to have it, and we'll make it happen. So, our search for the fairy tale causes us to seek happiness from sources, and here's where we go off the rails other than God. We get in such a hurry to define happiness on our own terms that we don't wait for God to do His work. Just plunge ahead, right? In fact, sometimes our, our search actually leads us away from God and into a place of sinfulness. A place where God is no longer at the center of our lives, but has been replaced by another person, a possession, a pleasure, an ideology, something different. And that leading away is typically a very subtle thing, but over time, we feel ourselves falling into what we call the happiness traps. 
The Word of God speaks of this very, very clearly. It feels when we get in the trap that there's no way to escape. I want you to stay with me now if you have ever experienced this. How do we avoid falling into the happiness trap? So the first thing is to know, what are they? And what do they encompass? And how do we stay away from them? And how do we beat them? If we can identify the trap, then we can avoid falling into it. Any smart mouse will tell you that. Now, three happiness traps I'm going to leave with you. And the value of the world, all the world's values are well known, have been known from time immemorial, and have never changed. And we find them in 1 John, I'm going to leave this reference with you, chapter 2, 15 to 16. If you haven't done your Bible reading yet today, do this and read that whole book of, the fir- of 1 John this week because it'll help you a lot. Here's what it says in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So what are they? Lust of the flesh. That's pleasure. Lust of the eyes, that's possessions. And, and the pride of life, that's prestige. See, as we look at this, let me make it clear, there's nothing inherently wrong with pleasure. There's nothing inherently wrong with possessions, certainly. And there's nothing inherently wrong uh, with, uh, with uh, prestige. But it's the attitude that we have towards these things that springs the trap. Pleasure. Most people associate it with pleasure. And most people understand pleasure. And most people have their definition of pleasure. You ask people, what do you want out of life? A lot of people will say, I know people say this regularly. I just want to have fun. I just want to be happy. Leave me alone. I just want to feel good. And they're all different ways of saying, I want pleasure. We use phrases like, if it feels good, do it. Or if it doesn't feel good, avoid it. That's why we as a people are spending multiplied billions of dollars every year on entertainment of one sort or another. We have pleasure and thrill seekers everywhere. And you and I probably included in that to some degree. Now here's the problem. The flesh is never satisfied. The flesh is never satisfied. What? It always wants more. That's why we are people are prone to addictions. People get on these long explanations and theories on addictions and so on. It's pretty simple, really. The flesh is never satisfied, and it always wants more, and that's why we're prone to addiction. And so if we try to find happiness by consistently giving our flesh all its desire, eventually we're going to find ourselves deep in the happiness trap of, of sin, and pleasure will overtake us. Second trap is possessions. It seems like our culture is emphasizing more and more and more every day what we own. Can I just tell you something? The truth is this. What do we own? What do we own? Nothing. Say, well, that's mine. I got it. I made it. I bought it. I paid for it. Judge people even by their possessions. 
by the clothes they wear, by the cars they drive, by the homes they live in. So what happens is our self-worth becomes based on our net worth. What happens? Possessions only become a problem when we see them as the answer to the happiness problem. Yeah, see, if I only had, then just name it. What is it? The money, the house, the car, the clothes, the jewelry, whatever it is. If I only had that, oh boy. See, money can buy a nice bed, but it can't buy you a good night's sleep. Money can buy a huge, humongous house, but it can't make it a home. Money can buy the best education you can get, but it can't make you wise. Some of the dumbest people I've ever met have more degrees than Dr. Fahrenheit. Money can't, it can buy you the best doctor in the best medical center in the best place in the world, but it can't buy you good health. Money can buy the biggest party you ever threw, but it can't buy you good friends. Money can buy the most extravagant vacations and resorts and cruises and all the rest, but it cannot buy you peace in your heart. Let's look at prestige. You see, today, boy, Madison Avenue knows this, marketing and image is everything. If you don't believe that, check out the price of a 30-second ad at the, in the recent Super Bowl coverage. It would knock you off your chair. Most of them were totally stupid. I had to have people explain them to me. I had no earthly idea what they even meant. I didn't even know what they were advertising. Said, well, you're really out of touch. Thank you. I'll stay that way. I'm afraid of what they mean. See, we, we, you know, we are status... Conscious, you say, well, that's just because you're an old man, and you don't get it, and we millennials are we're hip, and we're that has nothing to do with that. Nothing. It has everything to do with the pride of life. And marketers know if they can appeal to that trap in your life and in mine, they can hook us. You know, we look at a person who's a, let's just say he's a, a CEO of some big corporation. I can tell you. Do we look at that guy the same way as we do the guy who comes in and clocks in and works his regular eight hours every day and his main job is just to pick up the trash in the offices? Oh, no. The ads appeal to the, what I call the snob appeal. Like, if you've got this, man, you, <laughs> you're there. You, you've arrived. You're not down with the rest of the the slime, you, you know, you don't want to hang, hang with those people. You get this product, man, you're, you're up there. Yeah, I, I, I remember a few years ago, oh, I love that ad where the car, uh, the, the, the car pulled up to the big limousine and the window went down and the young fellow said, do you have any gray coupons? The, that was one of the most, how many of you ever saw that ad? Oh, good. That was, how many of you know what John 3.16 says? Okay, two of you. Uh, did, do, you have, <laughs> do you have any great poupon? You know why that ad was one of the most successful ads that any company 
ever put on the air. I'll tell you why. Because you and I don't want that normal French's mustard stuff. We want great poupon. See what it appeals to the prestige. We want to be, even if we're not, we want to be like celebrities. You know what a celebrity, a celebrity is? That's a person who works hard all his life to become well-known. Then he wears dark glasses to avoid being recognized. Some of them are really making absolute total fools of themselves these days in the media. The media bombards us with all these values, the pleasure, the possessions, the prestige. Listen, listen, even Christians, well-meaning people, get seduced by it, and they become our source of happiness in life. Here's a game for you to play at home next time you're just sitting around watching a little uh, of the tube. And, and uh, well, I'm going to call the game, What's the Value? Okay, I don't, think there's a, I, think, I don't think there's a copyright on that title. What's the value? Or if you want to call it, what's the lie? That's what you're really asking. And the next time you're watching TV and commercials, a commercial comes on, first off, try and determine what it's advertising. And secondly, between you or among you, try to determine what value they're selling. Like if you had this product, what value would that add to your life? So that's why I said you could actually reduce it down to just asking each other, well, what lie did they just tell? Happy. What would make you happy? Abraham Lincoln said this. He said, I've noticed that folks are generally about as happy as they've made up their minds to be. You think Jesus was a happy person? I do. Was it his money that made him happy? Was it his house that made him happy? Huh? Was it his job that made him happy? What is it his wife and kids that made him happy? Did that make all the difference in his life? Of course not. He had none of those things I I just mentioned. But we, as Americans and as Western culture, consider to make us happy, we've got to have those things and not necessarily in the order I just gave them. Think of the radical change Jesus made when he left heaven and came to earth. You ever think of that? You ever just sit and meditate on that? Let's do it. One moment he is royalty. The very next moment, he's in abject poverty. His bed became, at best, a borrowed pallet, but usually it was the cold, hard ground. He never owned any form of transportation and was always dependent on handouts for his income. He was sometimes so hungry that he ate raw grain or he picked fruit off a tree to sustain his physical body. He knew what it was like to be rained on and to be cold. He knew what it meant to have no home. In heaven, his palace grounds were probably greatly revered. Now, he, now he's living, and they were spotless, and now he's living in, in filth. And he's surrounded in heaven by, by perfection and perfection only. But now he's surrounded by imperfection and illness and sin and a fallen humanity. And in heaven, 
He had been greatly revered and is today and will forever be. Amen? But now on earth, he was ridiculed. His neighbors tried to lynch him. Some called him a lunatic. His family tried to contain him and confine him in their house. Those who didn't ridicule him tried to use him. They wanted favors. They wanted tricks. Uh, He was a novelty. They wanted to be seen with him. Think of this. That is, until being with him was out of fashion, then they wanted to kill him. So he's accused of a crime he never committed. Witnesses were hired to lie. The jury was rigged. No lawyer was assigned to his defense. A judge swayed by the politics of the day handed down the death penalty and they crucified our Savior. And he left, by the way, as he came, penniless. He was even, borrow, he was even buried in a borrowed grave. His funeral financed by compassionate friends. And though he once had everything, he died with nothing. And I, I paint that picture and I say to you, he should have been miserable. He should have been bitter. He had every right to be nothing but a pot of boiling water and just flowing over into the worst anger you could describe. But he wasn't. He was joyful in all of that. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, we're in a battle of two kingdoms. I didn't say two nations. I didn't say two cultures. I didn't say two nationalities. I didn't say two races of people. We are in a battle of two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And in this battle, and I'm speaking to Christians here, hopefully primarily, that's my audience, not totally, I'm sure, but I want Christians to get this. I want everybody to get this. In this battle of which I speak, there is a struggle between the believer's flesh and spirit. You ever notice? Well, read Romans chapter 7 and the Apostle Paul, who I think we kind of elevate to be a pretty prominent guy, said everything I shouldn't do I keep doing and everything I want to do I don't do and The flesh is drawn to the world, and the spirit is drawn to God. And I want to say, because we're going to look at it in a moment, the Sermon on the Mount is the most powerful sermon ever preached. It is a pivotal point in history. All of history turns on the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. It is the first sermon by the greatest preacher who ever lived. A lot of people go right into that, that uh, teaching in, in Matthew on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, but they forget what precedes it. Back a few pages, in Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament, the Old Testament actually ends with a curse. 
The word says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Then we come in to Jesus' teachings and he opens the teaching with the blessings known, we still call them the Beatitudes. Say, Why are they called that? Because they're attitudes that ought to be. Now, the Old Testament law demonstrates man's need of salvation, hear me, and the New Testament message offers the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord had to begin with a a proper presentation of the law so the people of the day would recognize their sin and then come for the offer of salvation. However, Jesus makes it clear that And this is so, so fundamental to what we believe and what I'm trying to teach this morning. Jesus making it very clear that man's effort can never earn him righteousness or salvation. I'm going to say it again. Man's effort can never earn him righteousness or salvation. You're sitting here today and you think, God is good, but you know, I had to do some things too and I've shaped up and I've, then you need to reconsider. You need to truly come to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. All of him and none of us. Only the new nature that God gives can enjoy the blessedness that Jesus is speaking of in the Sermon on the Mount. That's why that sermon, that whole message, that whole three chapters is so critical and so pivotal in human history. Folks, I want to go to the second word that I want to stress today. And I'm going quickly now, and here's why. Because America is in a hurry. Some of you are in a hurry right now. Can't wait till this gets over. Can't wait to get to lunch. Can't wait to go skating. How many are going skating with us? Okay, that'll be fun. Just the people I wanted to hang out with. We are hurried. Say that word with me. Hurried. What would make you happy? Do you know that we are the only nation on earth with a mountain called Rushmore? I think they should rename that mountain. In 1965, before most of you were born, a testimony before the Senate subcommittee claimed the future looked bright for free time in America. They predicted, or this report did, that by 1985, Americans would be working 22 hours a week and would be able able to retire at age 38. 1985 was the year we entered the, the United States. That's why we came. Because it said we we could retire at 38, and that's how old we were. I said, man, they got it made down there. Let's go. 70 plus 100, and I'm still working. Now, here was the reason they gave. The computer age. 
That was going to usher in this gleaming array of advances that would do all the work for us. It would also stabilize the economy. How'd that work for us? $20 trillion national debt. And now the computers are biting, and the VCRs, what, are, what, what you have with them, are recording, and the fax machines are faxing, yet the clocks are still ticking, and the people are still running. They don't know where they're running to, but they're running. They don't know what the hurry is, but they're in a hurry. And the average amount of leisure time has now shrunk 37% since 1973, and the average work week, on the other hand, has increased from 41 to 47 hours plus. You ask, why didn't the forecast, why didn't that original forecast ever come true? What, what, is it, was this, what did the committee overlook? What, what did they leave out of that? And I'm going to ask you, in all sincerity, I'm going to ask you very, very seriously, misjudged the appetite of the consumer. You know, all that stuff in the report was true, and it could have happened, it could have worked. But they never took into account the appetite of the consumer. Because in the 60s, we had those, the, that, that era of roaring individualism. Oh, we're still trying to, we're still trying to recover from that. Seriously. And it led to the materialism of the 80s. I mean, unbridled materialism. And the free time gained for us by technology didn't make us relax. It made us run. And here's what I don't understand. If handheld devices save us time, why is nobody even looking up? People are banging into... I mean, they're just walking into... I told you about the two blondes, didn't I? Well, two blondes walked into a building. You, you'd have thought one of them would have noticed it. You can explain it to them when you get home. I don't have time now. Okay. No, but this is how people sit down on, on, a, on a bus or in a train or on a plane, and boom, you walk down the street, same thing. Go to the store, same thing. I mean, where does it end? We don't have more free time. We don't have more relaxation now. We have less, if any. And we're still running, and we're still hurried, and we don't know how to stop it. Gadgets provide more time. More time means more potential money. More potential money means more time needed. And the circle just keeps going around us. Many folks today, someone said this, I like it, have so many irons in the fire, they can't keep any of them warm. Perhaps? Me? No. So we look now at the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to Matthew chapter 5. I hope you're with me. We're going to read a couple of verses. Starting at verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. I love this whole scene, I do. Saying, and we'll get to what he said. 
But before we do, I want you to notice the first thing Jesus did. What was the first thing he did? Go ahead and say it. He went up on the mountainside. He didn't go into their midst. He didn't say, stay where you are, I'm coming down. He didn't heal their sick. He didn't begin to teach them on the spot before they got to him. Before he went to the masses, he went to the mountain. Before the disciples faced the crowds, they faced the Christ. One of my dear men walked in this morning in the green room, and I was just trying to get this into my head and into my heart and said, are you feeling all right? Are you okay? And I said, I'm just trying. It was a mountain experience. I just wanted to have that moment where I could do nothing but concentrate on what I had to say and what I felt God was bringing to me that I could deliver to you. Jesus wants us to come up out of our hectic lives that keep us too busy to even, even, want, even, even to, to do what we want to do and to follow him to the stillness. Those of you that are hikers and you, a lot of you hike the trails in the mountains around here. God bless you. They, 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 you they, he wants us to follow him to the stillness of the mountainside, whatever or wherever that is in your life. Turn our back on the noise of the world so we can hear the still, small voice of the Father. You see, the reason many of us don't hear God isn't because we've tuned Him out. It's because we've flooded Him out by the overwhelming demands of everyday life. God's summit is clear. It's clean. It's fresh air. It's crisp. And the noise and the busyness of the world below. Whoa. Up there with God. Get the perspective we need to see true blessedness. One man I read about a while ago enjoyed this kind of time with God on the summit, and it sustained him to the very end of his life. As a matter of fact, a few days before he died, a priest came to visit him in the hospital, and as the priest entered the room, he noticed an empty chair beside the man's bed, and he asked him, he said, has somebody been in to visit you? And the old man said, no, I placed Jesus on that chair and I talk to him every day. The priest was puzzled, so the man explained, you know, years ago, a good friend told me that prayer, somebody need to really get this in here. Prayer was the talking to a good friend. I don't know the definition for some of you what prayer is. I don't understand. Pray, or the old thing we say, pray in public. Praying in public and praying in private, what? praying. It's speaking to a good friend. I notice you don't have any trouble speaking to a good friend any other time. That's enough of that. So every day, he said, I pull up a chair, I invite Jesus to sit with me, and we have a good talk. Every day. Some days later, the daughter of the man came to the parish house to inform the priest that her dad had died. And she said, because he seemed so content today, I just left him in the room alone for a while. Well, a couple hours, I guess. And when I got back to the room, I found him But I noticed a strange thing, though. His head was resting, not on a pillow, but on an empty chair that was beside his bed. Rested your head on a pillow. Verse 3, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are the people who recognize one's spiritual poverty apart from God. That is to see yourself as one as you really are, lost, hopeless, and helpless. Apart from Christ, every person is spiritually destitute, no matter what your education, your wealth, your social status, your accomplishments, your religious knowledge, your history, or how good you think you've made it. This keeps us from making the fatal error that God is less holy than he is, and we are more holy than we are. Being poor in spirit is the first beatitude. I want you to mark that. Why? Because humility must precede everything else. No one can receive the kingdom into his heart until he recognizes that he's unworthy of the kingdom of God. I said it earlier, I'll repeat it now, that sometimes God has to interfere with our life to get us to a point. It's like in the life of Peter, and I love Peter. He's so good to let us pick on him. If there was one thing Peter knew, it was one thing he knew. He knew fishing. And after a long night of fishing, catching nothing, the last thing Peter wanted to do, guess what? Was fish. Isn't it amazing how often God leads us to do the very thing we're trying to avoid Doing? Hello? Have you ever been there? Come on. Have you ever been there? Come on. Have you? So we pick up the story of Peter on the beach. On the beach he's washing his nets, the Bible says. And after a long night of catching nothing, verse 3 kind of says it for you, doesn't it? His back hurt, his neck hurt. His eyes were burning from the early morning sun, and all he wanted to do was go home and sleep. Here comes Jesus, a great crowd of people following him, of course. But he needs a podium. So he asked Peter if he can use his boat to teach the people from and Peter allows him to use the boat, and that became the master's pulpit. Jesus climbs in, and Peter pushes him a little ways into the water. I want to tell you something, and this is a bold confession for myself. I've been right there where Peter was. Stay with me. You say, what do you mean? Washing my nets, as it were. In other words, going about my own daily routine while allowing Jesus to do his thing right nearby. See, there's no risk involved. The boat is only in shallow water. Peter is not asked to do anything that would pull him out of his duty. I mean, just show up for church every once in a while, splash around in the shallow water of God's blessing. Oh, besides, Pastor, I'm tired. I've worked hard all week. Isn't just showing up enough? Yeah, I'll let Jesus use my boat. And then he can go his way, and I'll go my way. Everybody's going to feel better. Because it's all about feeling better. And that, if you'll come with me now to our second passage of Scripture, over to Luke chapter 5, so not hard to remember, Matthew 5 and Luke 5, and come down to verse 4, Jesus poses the serious scenario. When he had fi- finished speaking, he said, or finished teaching, he said to some 
put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Just exactly what Peter didn't want to hear. Huh? Here's the answer. Verse 5. Master, we worked hard all night and we haven't got anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. Thought about this. Still thinking about it. As a matter of fact, maybe you have. How many of you have ever heard of a pregnant pause? You're expecting something to come, and I'm expecting something to come, and nothing comes. No, really. I wonder, I'm serious about this. I wonder if there was that pause after the words, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. You know, it's one of those times where you're waiting on the other person to say, oh, well, never mind, never mind then. That's the way you are. We'll fish another day. And when the conditions are better, we'll try it. Nothing. Silence. (laughs) I think Jesus looks at Peter. Peter looks at John. I don't know who John looked at. And no one says anything. Awkward. So Peter finishes the thought by saying, this is the, this is the second thought he had. Well, since you said so, I'll go ahead and let, let the nets down. I'm going to tell you this, and I'll admit Good thing Brother Bob wasn't in that boat with Peter. In that boat with Peter and Jesus as they begin to, to row back out into the deep water. Because I can guarantee you this standing before you. I, wouldn't, I, would, I, I would have been doing some talking. No, I'll rephrase it. I would have been doing some moaning and groaning and mumbling and grumbling and muttering under my breath. Thing I ever heard of? What is going on? What does he expect of us? Why do we blah 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 blah? How do I know I'd do that? Because I've done it enough times when God instructed me to go this way, that way, or another way. You haven't, but I'm telling you in case you ever get there in your life. Can I also tell you this? This is where the miracle takes place, right there. A lot of time we read the miracles of the Bible and we just accept them. But I always like to say, well, where is the miracle? Like, how many remember the message a few weeks ago on the feeding of the 5,000? You know, one thing I forgot to tell you is that really wasn't the miracle. Because it was a feeding of 20,000. I don't care if it was a feeding of 100,000. God fed the Israelites every day for 40 years. He couldn't... Feed a little crowd of 20,000 people? Think of that. Think of the power of our God. But this is where the miracle takes place. Maybe to you and me, it's not that big a deal. But these are two professional fishermen, Peter and John, and that's what it was. What would make you happy? Now come come down in Luke 5 to verse 6. When they had done so, whoops, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. What a great problem to have. We've got a lot of fish, but we're all going to drown. 
Mm. Mm. And then look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Verse 9. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. Ah, something interesting here. You may have caught it, may not have. He must have been thinking as they were rowing out into the deep water that there was no way on God's green earth that they were going to catch any fish. These two professional fishermen had fished all night and came in with nothing. I've been there. You see, that's where God has to get us when our own human efforts prove useless. Emmer Dahan used to say, man's extremity is God's opportunity. Only way it's going to work out, God's got to get involved. I don't know, you ever had that in your life? You just said, I don't, I don't know. But if this thing's going to work, God's got to be in it, on it, all over it, and through it. It's got to happen that way. As I read the Bible, uh, I've come to the conclusion that God loves surprises. Hello, Mary. And with Peter's surprise, he realized Jesus wasn't just... See the transition here? Now we realize Jesus is not merely a teacher to be called master. Didn't he call him master a few verses earlier? He was God. And now he calls him Lord. He bows down and grabs the knees of Jesus and calls him Lord. Let me tell you this story. True story. Happened a few years back. Story of a young, very successful executive. I'll just tell you his first name. His nickname was Josh, and he was traveling down a neighborhood street in the city of Chicago, and he was going too a little bit too fast, as you would prone you'd be prone to do. Two, if you owned a sleek, brand new black Jaguar that was about two months old, he was being really careful because he know he knew in that neighborhood sometimes kids would dart out between parked cars, and he didn't want anything to happen. So whenever he thought he saw something even, he'd slow down. As this car passed a a certain spot, there was no child running out. But a brick came sailing through the air and wham! Mashed into the Jag's shiny back door, the side door. Those are brakes. He slammed on his brakes. And his gears ground into reverse. I don't do gears. His tires were spinning. He backs up the Jaguar to the spot where the brick had been thrown. He jumps out of the car. He grabs a kid who was standing nearby. And he pushes him up against a parked car. And he's shouting at him. And he said, who are you anyway? And what the devil are you doing? You, you, he's just building up a head of steam. It's just coming out of him, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? And he went on, and he said, that's my new jag. And the brick you threw is going to cost you a lot of money. Why did you throw it? Little fellow said, please, mister, please, please, mister, I'm sorry. I didn't know what else to do. I threw the brook because brick because no one would stop. Tears down the boy's face and off his chin, and he points around the parked car. He said, It's my big brother, mister. He rolled off the curb and he fell out of his wheelchair, and I can't lift him up. 
sobbing. The boy pled, would you please help me get him back into his wheelchair? He's hurt and he's too heavy for me. Moved beyond words. Josh, the young executive, tried desperately to swallow that rapidly swelling lump in his throat. Yep, like you have right now. Straining, he lifted the young man back into the wheelchair. And he took out his handkerchief. He wiped the scrapes and the cuts. Checking to see that everything else was okay. Then do you know what he did? He walked with them to make sure that the younger brother was able to get them back home It was a long, long walk back to the sleek, black, shining Jaguar. I mean, a long, long Josh never did get that door fixed. kept the dent there to remind him not to go through life so fast that someone has to throw a brick at him to get his attention again. Not advocating violence, but man, some of us need a brick thrown at us. What would make you happy? God may not take you on a fishing trip. He may not even uh, have somebody throw a, a brick at your car. But you take my word for it, he can get your attention. I know, I know who I'm talking to, and I know many of you are very, very busy with life. And it's all that because nine out of ten people I talk to, whether it's in church or somewhere else, I say, how are you doing? I really want to know how they're doing. And they always say the first word, I'm busy. I didn't ask if you're busy. I said, how are you doing? Some busy people are doing great. Most busy people have, can't even answer the question. They're so busy. They didn't hear you. They don't know what you're talking about. How are you? I know you're very busy. I know life's tough for some, for most, for all, one way or another. But I want to urge you today as I close to follow the Lord to the mountaintop. And spend some time alone. I said alone. Just you. And then... Bask in his love. Before long, like a young child, you'll be singing a song to him. Happy. Yes. You'll be saying, I could sing of your love. Lord, you are so amazing. We thank you that you have created us to worship you. We pray that you will know how much we love you and that your name and your greatness will be known all over the world. Ooh, the 
Yeah. And I will open up my heart and, and let, let the healer set me free. 